0: So, hello, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of Open World. Today, we have uh, Kate Edwards with us. Um, Kate Edwards is the CEO and Principal Consultant of Geography, a consultancy that pioneered content culturalization. And she's also a board member of Take This and is the former executive director of the International Game Developers Association, that's IGDA, from 2012 to 2017. In addition to being an outspoken advocate who serves in several advisory board roles, she is a geographer, writer, and corporate strategist. Following 13 years at Microsoft, she has consulted on many game and non-game projects for Bioware, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and many other companies. Fortune Magazine named her as one of the 10 most powerful women in the game industry in 2013, and in 2014, she was named by Games Industry Best as one of their six people of the year. In 2018, she was honored with Reboot Develop's Annual Hero Award and also presented with Indicate's Annual Game Changer Award. She's also profiled in the December 2018 publication, Women in Gaming, among 100 professionals of play. She's worked on many game franchises, including Halo, Fable, Age of Empires, Dragon Age, Modern Warfare, Mass Effect, Effect, and many others. Wow, that's a very impressive um background i mean we can No, we, we're so excited to have you here welcome <laughs> well, thank you
1: um, i i would just add what one thing i would add is i'm also currently the executive director of the global game jam um
0: yes we we also know that and we want to hear all about it because i mean how do you do it it's it's remarkable, <laughs> honestly. Uh,
1: I, wa- I wonder that too sometimes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so w- what can we expect for next year's Game Global
1: Jam? 2020? Yeah,
0: can, can, can you share more details on, on yeah, what it is?
1: Of course. Well, you know, when we, had to, uh, when we had our jam just before the pandemic hit in 2020, um, it was another record-breaking year for us. We had uh, almost, well, we had about 49,000 people in 118 countries at 934 live sites and they made about 9,600 games in that global game jam last year and then of course with the pandemic we had to pivot to an all virtual format for 2021 which is something we had never done before and so that was that was challenging you know it was not easy because you know so many people associate the global game jam with that live experience you know working shoulder to shoulder with people and it's really hard to replicate that online and so we did our best um, our numbers were down, but we still had about overall about 60 to 70% of the people that we had in 2020. So we were wow. very happy about that. Um, we were hoping to get at least 50%. And we easily got that. So, um, of course, looking forward to 2022, um, I think all of us are hoping it'll be on site again, you know, the pandemic will be past, And I think, you know, most of us will be vaccinated by that point, um, you know, hopefully. And uh, so we're right now, we're basically expecting it to probably be mostly an on site event, although one of the things we learned in 2021 doing the virtual event is that there's a lot of value in having the virtual access for some people, because obviously, some people, um, well, a lot of people, they live in rural areas, and it's not easy for them to get to game jam sites that tend to be in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, of course, there's people with accessibility issues that prevent them from traveling or prevent them from going on a daily basis. So we're going to figure out a way to basically, you know, we'll we'll probably mostly have it live, but we'll figure out a way to also include people who are virtual. That's incredible. Um,
0: and I bet that your numbers are, are going to go up if you do go hybrid. Actually, today I heard that Gamescom is going hybrid as well. Yes. So I think that's the yeah. gonna be the future for most events, right? I
1: think so too. I, I advise on a lot of events like Gamescom, and I'm on mm-hmm. the GDC advisory board and several others and And all of them, I I think they all learned last year that regardless if you go back to an on site format, you're going to have to provide some kind of virtual offer as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the new normal, I think. It is. I agree.
3: The best of both worlds, then.
1: Yeah. I think so too. You know, the bigger, the biggest challenge there is how do you get, you know, if you can do this, how do you get the virtual people? interacting with the live people because you know they tend to be kind of split so that i think that's one of the key challenges that events have to think about is how do you get those two different groups interacting with each other
0: yeah i can't wait to see what come up from there
2: mm-hmm. yeah well another
3: yeah, another no. question we had for you. Um, we know, obviously, you are an expert in culturalization. <laughs> and we wanted to, for our human sake, let's pretend that we are a group of game devs who are working on our first game, and we have no idea about culturalization. Not a thing. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give us to make our game global? Um, I guess more specifically, how does localization complement culturalization in a video game?
1: That is a great question. So the way I would put it is that I think, you know, for most people, they understand what localization is. And I think, you know, the way that I see localization is is essentially it's mostly language translation. I know there's other parts to it as well, but it's mostly focused on language translation, which obviously is very, very important for making sure your content is legible in other markets around the world. But the, where culturalization comes in is kind of another level of that where it's not focused as much on language translation. What it's focused is on basically concept translation and culture translation. So that's where the culturalization part comes in. So, for example, whereas localization may not focus on the, the design of a specific character and the outfit that they're wearing and the symbols that are on their outfit um, or things like that that's what i focus on so i'm trying to see are there any cultural influences in the game whether it's in the architecture or the character design or even in the story um because a lot of game narratives will borrow from real world history for example but then they'll dress up the scenario to be something different so like maybe they'll take like the battle of pearl harbor from world war ii but then they'll dress it up in a different way but then it's like But a lot of players could say, well, that I think that's Pearl Harbor is what they're showing, but it's between orcs and humans. So, um, (laughs) um, you know, and that's that's the use of allegory. And allegory is a very, very powerful narrative tool that helps us express concepts and ideas in games or film or anything else in a way that kind of mimics the real world situation without addressing the real world issue. Um, You know, and some of the older media that a lot of us are familiar with, like the original Star Trek or the Twilight Zone episodes from the 1960s, they were experts at using allegory because at those times back in the 1960s, you could not show these sensitive topics, you know, explicitly on television. So like talking about racism and talking about the Cold War Uh, or or all of these kinds of things and yet a lot of the twilight zone episodes in even the star trek episodes they regularly were dealing with issues around racism and and issues like that but they couldn't say it Mm -hmm. you know and they couldn't explicitly show it so they had to do it in a way that was using allegory instead and so in games we do that a lot in culturalization that's one of the things i look for a lot because uh, culturalization also (laughs) looks at the narrative um, as well as the designs, as well as like the overall concept and the world that is being built. And basically my job is to see how how well, how compatible is this world going to be with the cultures who are going to be playing in this world? Are there things they're going to see that, they, that may kind of make them not um, be immersed in the experience? Um, you know, they'll see something that relates to their culture or politics or something. And all of a sudden, rather than being immersed in the game that you want them to play, all of a sudden now they're thinking about the real world issue that you force them to see. And so it's it's there's a lot of layers to it, to culturalization. There's a lot of different things um, that you have to think about.
0: Yes, and we we also know that culturalization can uh, be part of the whole development process, either from the beginning when they start working on the lore and the scrapes and the characters, or at the very end where the product is finished and you need to go back to sometimes <laughs> to the game developers and say, okay. hey, this is not going to work very well. Um, so um as we we already know you've been helping for years publishers and game developers to avoid falling into any political or even cultural or diversity mistakes but are there any common mistakes that you were able to identify through those years um and specifically when it comes to diversity in your opinion what are the games that got diversity right and why
1: yeah, that that's a great question, too. I mean, there, you know, obviously things have changed tremendously in all the time I've been in this industry, because as of next month, April, it'll be 28 years I've been working in wow. the video game industry. So, um, and so, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> so, oh but Experience. actually, you know, you know, it's funny is, is uh, so I turned 56 last month. So actually, that'll be half my life. That's uh,
2: pretty damn awesome. <laughs>
1: <Stone>. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, so in all that time, obviously, the way that we are sensitive to issues of diversity and inclusion has changed dramatically in society in a good way, you know, mm-hmm. I think in a, in a very positive way compared to over 25 years ago. Um and so that's really good. I mean that's that's something that I've seen that is really encouraging to me because back when I first started when dealing with culturalization issues on a lot of the early games like back in my days at Microsoft it's not that people didn't really care um it's it's that they just didn't see how important it was you know so if you raise a red flag and say why are all these characters white dudes You know, now I'm not saying that's always bad because if the narrative demands it, if you can justify that in the narrative, then maybe it makes sense. But then you always have to ask the other side of that question well, what if it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter if one of the people is black, does it matter if one of the people is Hispanic or another race? And oftentimes the answer is no, it doesn't really matter to the narrative, they're still the same group of characters that are going to go on a certain adventure together and therefore that's where I would push the argument well if it doesn't affect the narrative or the gameplay then why not be diverse what's I mean there's nothing wrong with that you know and so that making that argument 25 years ago was more difficult than today well today it's the it's almost the opposite Uh, so which is great because now companies a lot of the companies I work with are being very determined and be, being very intentional about expressing underrepresented groups in their characters, especially where wherever it makes sense. And I think that's fantastic. And, you know, a lot of the RPGs I'm working on, like I'm working on Dragon Age 4 right now, um, there's a huge effort to make sure, like when you create a character, for example, that you can basically create any kind of character you want like anything you know including variable pronouns or whatever you want and so i think that's really the um the the right path forward that gives the player complete freedom of expression within the game's universe um so so one of the challenges that i've seen you know and, and this still even though things have moved in a positive direction over the last many years i think just being aware is number one that's some people say, well, that's the easy part. It's actually not. It's mm. it's not the easy not part. Really. All,
0: if it all were, were that to... easy, we weren't <laughs> we, we, we were we discussing we about. About this, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: all you have to do is go check out Twitter for five minutes and you'll see that no, it's not the oh, yeah. awareness is not the easy part. Mm-hmm. Um it's actually very challenging to get people to come around and understand and i think it's frankly to be quite honest it's more challenging right now than it was even five years ago because i think we kind of hit this really nice pinnacle of awareness and understanding but because of the last four years for various issues that we won't go into i think there's been that greater polarization around these topics so now you're getting more pushback from certain people who are just like why should i care about this why should i think about this why what about me what about my rights right Mm -hmm. you know it's just like the bottom line is like i still use the same argument i've used for many years which is like does it change, for the context of games, does it change the narrative of the game? Does it change the player's interaction with the world? And almost always the answer is no, it doesn't. So better representation does not really affect those things. Um, in fact, it can enhance those things um, by pu- by allowing the player to be in somebody else's cultural shoes, so to speak, or ethnic shoes or whatever it else might be. Um, so i think one of the things that that people need to understand one of the base baseline things you need to have that awareness and understand that your game is going to be go out to a multicultural audience that is global and i think most game creators want that you know they want people to enjoy their game as many people as possible and not just for money reasons because they also i think all of us as creative people you make some, You spend all that time making something, and you want people to enjoy it. It's that simple. And so if you want as many people as possible to enjoy it, you have to make sure that your game is going to be accessible from a cultural standpoint to as many people as possible and um and that so that requires a certain level of awareness and it also it doesn't mean you completely change everything you're doing in your creative vision but it means you you kind of step back and make sure that everything you're creating is done so intentionally like why is this object in that environment why does the costume look like that where did we get the influence from why are we borrowing from this culture or that culture um so there's kind of this level of being very intentional about what we create that is probably, to me, one of the most important things that any developer can do. Um, rather than just kind of get heads down, as we all do, we get in our kind of creative zone, and we just make stuff. And then maybe a month later, you realize, oh, yeah, maybe I should not have used that stereotype. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But that's that's the problem. A lot of people don't take the time to stop and think about that. They just keep moving forward and creating.
2: Uh, it's funny, because we were talking about... Uh... of the log facts that we do and Mm -hmm. we did the brief and everything and then we got back to it like a month later and it was (laughs) like this is such a good thing that we let it rest because we could Mm -hmm. tweak it for a bit you know even though it might
0: be a slight change but the meaning and how people interpret it and how they perceive what we're trying to say changes completely so that Part of the create should be like a key for the creative process, right?
1: I think so too. And and you have to be you have to be willing to be critical of your own work. And if you're not capable of doing that, then you need to have somebody around you who can be. And I don't and I don't mean critical in a negative way. I mean critical. Like I always tell people when I give them feedback, whether I'm mentoring somebody or whether I'm talking to a development team, I will always be constructively blunt which means I will tell you exactly what I'm thinking, but I will tell you in a way that is hopefully going to be useful. I don't want them, you know, uh, to to think of this process as a negative thing. Um, you know, and some people, they're going to think that anyway. They're like, oh, this is being politically correct, and I don't like that. That's a different issue. That's a personality, mm-hmm, yeah. you know, worldview thing. That's, you know, I'm talking about specifically what's best for the game and what's best for the company and what's best for the goals of this whole enterprise that we're trying to do uh, and keep it focused on that.
2: Right. Yeah, what's best for the game, not what's best, not what the developer thinks or an individual thinks. But that brings me to to something that I had a hard time phrasing this question. Uh, But how do you actually build a world in a video game? Bear with me here. It's like a multi-layer question. what aspects do you take into account i mean you you named a few uh, but to make the player's experience as immersive as possible and also when 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 do you think that it that's enough that it's like, that <laughs> you're not like over <laughs> over <laughs> easter egg everything you know or something <laughs> like that
1: yeah that that's yeah that's a really challenging point that i think every game developer struggles with and if there's one Mistake I've seen many indie developers do is they build, they overbuild their worlds when they start out, or they just have a vision that is so ambitious that's way beyond their capability. um Or like, let me put it this way: maybe they're capable of it, but not in a reasonable time frame. So, for example, I once met a, th- a, a three-person indie team who said they're going to make an MMO or RPG. Three people, it's going to make Three an people. MMO. Yeah. And they're going to do it with their own game engine that they're creating. And I'm just ambitious. like, okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: ambitious. yeah. Ambitious. very
1: <laughs> ambitious. I got, to, I gave them points for being ambitious and being confident because I think that's really cool. But also I, I tried to bring a sense of reality to them that, mm-hmm. you know, what they're setting out to do is going to, um, you know, it, it's going to really be a problem for them in the long run. They're going to get discouraged. It's going to be a challenge. I'm not saying they shouldn't try it, but I, t- I kept encouraging them. You need to get more people. You really need to get a lot more people and maybe not do an MMO and maybe not, you know, not I mean, make this massive online world. It's like, there's don't do it. So anyway, um, world building, it, it really comes down to a couple of key factors that and I kind of mentioned them already, but I'm going to repeat them again what i i like to call it world realization sometimes so when you realize a world it's basically bringing to life that vision that's in your head um you know so writers do it through the written page and of course filmmakers do it on screen with camera and cg and all that fun stuff and we do it through game engines and our and our capability um you know it's it's but all of that process world building process at its core is the same it's basically deciding you know, first of all, what's the narrative you're going to tell? There's you know, every game, in my view, has some kind of narrative. Even Angry Birds has a narrative. It's super simple. It's pigs vis you know birds versus pigs. but there's still a narrative there, and they've actually explored that through other media, like you know, uh, film and comic books and yeah. things like that. But in the game itself, there is a narrative, even though the narrative is super simple and it's right there in front of you. there's really not much more to it but there's still a narrative behind it and that's true i think of every game there's something some kind of thread of a story or or that is being told uh and i think most people who when we talk about video games they're thinking about narrative in in the real sense like skyrim and breath of the wild and you know grand theft auto and yeah, these huge
2: go big.
1: yeah huge expansive narratives that are multi-layered and all these different paths you know cyberpunk 2077 and all that kind of stuff And that's, you know, that I think is more typical of what people think about when you think about a narrative for a video game. But the point being is that you have a narrative and then you have the experience. So you've got narrative goals. So what's the story you're going to tell? And you've got experience goals. What is the player actually doing in that narrative? What is it a first person shooter? Is it an RPG? Um, You know, there's the genre type. But then there's also within that, of course, there's all kinds of different variables about what what kind of things the player is actually going to be doing. And so those two things are kind of the most fundamental thing you have to think about to decide how much world do I need to build to fulfill the narrative goal and the experience goal. And what I see a lot of times is developers will overbuild because they feel that in order to create like this full experience for the player, um, they need to create this, you know, they need a climate system and we need like topography like mountains and all that kind of stuff and then we need you know an economy and we need a political system and just all these different things that kind of fill out the world but i've worked on some big games where for example they spent a lot of time creating an economy an in-game economy like how the economy works in that world with a money system and everything like that and then the player almost never interacted with it and i'm like what a tremendous waste of time. I mean, because in the because the narrative didn't really require the player to interact with an economic system, and yet the developers felt that they wanted to have an economic system that was kind of in a, in a layer, it uh, was a sub-layer in that world that you don't really interact with much. But I'm like, why, 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 why bother? I mean, I understand from a creative. Perspective that you're like, well, I want this world to have, I want to know everything going on in this world, but ultimately, it's like, but they actually spent time coding an economic system that was never really used. I'm like, what? Then that's a complete waste of time, in my view. Um, you know, and like I've seen games, for example, build in weather systems into their environments, and some of these games, the weather has no bearing on the gameplay at all. It it makes no difference. All it's there is just for atmospheric purposes, mm-hmm. which you know, which is useful too. But then, if you look at get, look at a game like Breath of the Wild, their atmospheric system directly impacts gameplay. It has a great deal to do with gameplay. Like, you can't climb the slippery rocks when it's raining, right. and you know, and you know when the lightning's about to strike you, which really sucks. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's but it it has that direct impact on you. And yeah. so, it's like, was that time well spent? Of course, it was. You know, because they actually used that mechanism in the world building itself. And so so that's one of the areas where I see a lot of developers they fail right from the start because they just want to make all of this stuff they want to make all this really cool stuff to make their world you know really kind of fleshed out but you don't need to you know if you look at games again go back to simple games and some of these you know a lot of these tend to be mobile games but I think we can learn lessons from them like if you remember the game limbo um way back when the kind of that really dark environment and everything yeah. It was really it, they did a tremendous job of establishing the world in the in the tone and the feeling of the world and yet they didn't overbuild at all they they created visually exactly what they needed and the gameplay itself was fairly simple you know side scroller but um they did a really good job at, at using kind of a minimalist approach and yet the game was super popular did very very well and so you know thinking that i have to build all this stuff in order to be successful in my game is is one of those uh, fallacies that i think a lot of people starting out don't realize yeah and, and while
2: i was listening to you to you say this uh, I, I i can remember many games that have these features that you end up not even using And mm-hmm. i'm not going to say any any examples right <laughs> But I, I can I can picture quite a few, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it, it, I think as players, we always appreciate depth. You know, so mm. I think for a lot of players, they're not going to turn, a, you know, like, like the economic system example. It's like if I have a hint of that in the game I'm playing, but I never interact with it. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to say, why did you build right. this economic system? So it's like, I think from a player standpoint, it's not wasted time because they don't, they have no idea how much time was spent on that, you know? Right. So, it, I, so we're we're obviously talking very much from a production standpoint, okay. not from a consumer standpoint.
2: Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, but that's and, great advice for game devs or, right there. For devs. Exactly. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs>
3: um, and, Similarly, but also focusing a little bit more on your skills and knowledge as a geographer. By the way, for anybody who has not seen Kate's video or her GDC talk on world building as a geographer, I would highly recommend checking it out right away because it is Thank very, you. very, very cool and educational. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you enter into a game world, there are all those little things or maybe those not so subtle things that tell you where exactly in the real world you are actually standing and I'm curious from your point of view what is the process of coming up with those references look like because I would imagine that culturalization as well as a bunch of market research must go into that
1: there is yeah I mean that's often a collaboration in, um you know with with several aspects of the team obviously like you said with marketing um certainly with the game designers um it's in being very careful about, you know, and where I come into it is like, what, like if they're going to have some kind of object in the game, like a special object or something or whatever it might be a weapon, who knows? Um, that's where I come in to make sure that whatever is being added to the game for that, for that purpose is something that fits the universe. It makes sense. Um, it's not something that's going to going to be seen out of context for that particular world. Unless again, you have a very specific reason why it's out of context um you know it's it's um yeah so basically it it's a little bit it, it it's that interplay between those areas because you're kind of anticipating what the players going how the players going to react to something um but then also you're trying to stay true true to the creative vision um yeah and it's it, but then you also have to be sensitive to the local culture that you're dealing with so um it it's really complicated i mean there's times on different games i've worked on where it takes place in a very clear cultural um uh, environment that that's obviously related to the real world um like when i worked on the jade empire game um from bioware which was that was years ago but it was a asian fantasy world you know in much the same way that most fantasy games we play today are based on european medieval culture you know this was a game that was attempting to make a a fantasy game that's based on east asian medieval culture um which i thought was really ambitious and it was a ama- it was super fun to work on this game but it was really really complicated because um what they did initially is they grabbed a huge chunk of chinese culture to be the kind of the foundation for the games in game culture and again remember this is not supposed to be related to the real world whatsoever but then they grabbed pieces of korean culture pieces of japanese culture and a little bit of uh uh, south asian indian culture um and it's almost like they threw them all into this big pot and stirred it around and then kind of threw it onto the table and you know and said okay here's our jade empire culture And that approach was not really the best. I I would not recommend that approach um, because we had to think a lot lot more carefully about the objects that we were pulling from these different cultures. First of all, recognizing the fact that just if you take China, Japan, and Korea, there is a lot of uh, socio-historical tension between Mm -hmm. these three countries. Tremendous amount of tension. So um, we have to be super careful about that because one of the things that you do when you like throw all of these different cultural artifacts into the same pot and then you kind of mix it up and pretend it's this new culture. It's like, well, now you're for one thing, you're saying all of these cultures are equivalent, you know, which is it's basically that's that in today's, you know, I think from today's perspective, that can be seen not only as insensitive, but actually borderline racist. Mm-hmm. Um, by basically saying like, you know, oh, Jap you know, Japanese culture, Korean culture, Chinese, they're all no, the same.
2: same. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, which is just incredibly inappropriate. So mm-hmm. um, so that's why when we have games that borrow, you know, objects or we have things that we put into the game, we have to be incredibly sensitive about where we're getting these things from and what role they play in the game. Um, especially today, it just we we just have to think very hard about that. Not just kind of randomly put stuff in there because we think it's uh, you know we think it's going to look good or we think it's going to serve a sp- specific purpose or for marketing or whatever. Um, oftentimes, that's what I call the process of backfilling the game, which is basically when the artists and everybody else doing their work during the main production cycle, they're just making stuff every day and just throwing it in, you know, just putting all kinds of stuff into the environment. And a lot of times, again, it's done without as much uh, intention as it should be.
2: Yeah, you have to be mindful of what you're doing. Again, take a step back, then Mm -hmm. go back to see. Or have
0: another set of eyes, someone that's fresh and it's objective and can bring uh, a new perspective to the table, right? so before we go to our last section, um, the meme section, I wanted to know, um, what was your favorite project so far?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> so... I
0: know
2: that's a hard question.
1: <laughs> that is so hard to answer. I've worked on so many games. Um, well, let's see. There's must have your favorite. well there's there's favorites for different reasons so i'll tell you the favorite from a very personal reason and that was working on star wars the old republic um so i got to work on star wars the old republic for four years um in the in it's not just because i'm a huge star wars geek but it's also because when i was um when i left high school you know to to go out, out into the world um beyond my first aspiration of wanting to be an astronaut the, the next thing I really wanted to do is I wanted to be a conceptual artist for Lucasfilm because I wanted to work on a Star Wars movie really, really bad. And um, I had the artistic skill, but I just, you know, I so I kind of pursued that academically doing industrial design. Um, but then I changed the geography and the rest is history. Um, you know, and I still kind of, I could still use my artistic skill with cartography and map making and all that. Um, but that desire to work on something Star Wars was obviously it's still there. So when I had the chance to work on that game, personally, it was very fulfilling. You know, as they say in Star Wars, the circle is now complete. So, um, so that felt really good to be able to work on that. Um, I think from, you know, just from a kind of more from the geographer side of my brain, um, working on stuff like Age of Empires has been immensely fun because you're dealing with real history and real geography and um you know i'm working on age of empires 4 right now we're wrapping that up pretty soon um, it's and it's just
0: over here by the way
1: <laughs> it is fun i've worked on all the original age of empires and age of mythology and it's just so much fun to work on those games it's also really really challenging because you have to it's it's a it's a pretty strong intellectual challenge to think about how you're going to take this real world event and which was a contentious event and you know put it into a game format that's going to be you know frankly it's going to be fun for players to do this challenge um yeah and that can be complicated at times but um but they're always fun to work on age of empires it's just uh it's such a great franchise and um yeah there's a there's a lot of other games i mean i think also from a personal level just because i'm such a huge fan of the universe i the fact that i've worked on Um, several of the Halo games, Um, I'm a huge Halo geek. And um, when I have extra time to actually play a game, oftentimes when I want to relax, I'll play, I'll still play Halo multiplayer, you know, and I I love playing that game. So uh, yeah, I'm very big into it still. So I think that was also super fun to work on those.
0: We'll love to see you streaming Halo, by the way. Have you
1: ever tried that? No, I haven't. I, you know, it's funny because I, um i played really a ton of of multiplayer for years and years after the game came out and then i kind of dropped out because i was i was busy and everything and then of course i started up again um especially when they finally had the master chief collection on steam so it made, makes it a lot more accessible for me to just you know basically not work i can just turn over here and start playing
3: <laughs>
1: but uh, which is dangerous but um but of course my my 56 year old reflexes are not what they used to be so i can do okay but it takes me several matches to kind of get back into it mm-hmm. if i play maybe 5 matches maybe i can get maybe the top 5 you know or so um you know so it's it's but i still now i play it just for fun i, I the competitive part of it i don't think about that as much now i just go if i get killed eh, i don't care i've been killed many times before yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, that's the best attitude to approach it, especially when you don't have that much time to practice, right?
1: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I've
2: had very little time. And I'm sorry, Flor, before we go to the memes, I want to take one moment to to speak about Age of Empires, because this is something that was brought up (laughs) when we were in your interview. (laughs) I want to thank you because the amount of things that I've learned
0: with Age of
2: Empires... (laughs) I've literally passed tests. Nice. Doing Age of Empires campaigns.
1: <laughs> yes, it's <Literally. that's> awesome.
2: <laughs> literally. So thank you.
1: <laughs> oh, no, that's fantastic! I love hearing that. That's so cool. Well, it's the same reason why one of my favorite franchises is uh, Assassin's Creed, and um, and I've not, I have not worked on an Assassin's Creed game, even though I have advised Ubisoft, but I haven't specifically worked on assassin's creed and that would be kind of a dream project for me because i love the melding of history and geography in those games as well yeah and they it's it's they're so well done i just have so much fun with those games
2: you should check out one of the log facts that we did we did yeah. uh, one a log fact about the last three as since create actually oh cool about, awesome about the about the culturalization of egypt of ancient greece and of the oh excellent Northern... i will yeah you yeah. should check it out i'm i'm going to send you the link afterwards yeah please do awesome
0: <laughs> great so now we're going to go to, after the fun moment, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to go to uh, the meme section because uh, we always like to end in a high note. But yes, <laughs> here we are. Well, here's the Star Wars fan. <laughs> the first one that you shared was a great reference.
2: Now, I, I, could, I could almost imagine oh. uh, one of us getting choked <laughs> on, <laughs> on an interview. It's like, how did you say that?
3: It's one too many questions, no,
1: <laughs> I think, like like many people, I la- I laugh at the dumbest stuff. I thought this was hilarious, though.
0: Oh yeah, and it's uh, so and funny. When I was a kid, I was so but because I I watched this movie, of course. When I was a kid, and I was so scared of this scene, and now it's oh up. yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah,
1: oh, I love it. This well. this one is so dumb, but I laughed <laughs> so hard when I first saw this. But it's just Our it's just it's, it's It's just dumb but it's funny.
0: <laughs> it's like name. the dad joke. We I we love the, the caps memes. <laughs> they're, they're great. In Greece. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so funny. just feel that. <laughs> we have a ton of this. Uh I have a lot. I like, I actually have like uh, a special folder of caps memes. So Oh uh, nice. I for more with you.
1: If you want.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's a thing between some of our team members at Terra. Oh,
1: I love yeah. it.
2: <laughs> well, this is very, very accurate, actually.
1: <laughs> now, this is a great movie that I could watch. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I thought a friend of mine sent me this because, um, because he, I know the stuff he collects. And uh, I mean, look, look at my room. I mean, I collect a lot of stuff, too. But yeah,
2: I, I'm eyeballing that Stormbringer sensitive.
1: Oh, yeah. That's part of my Thor cosplay. So, nice. Um but yeah, I thought this was really funny. It's like <laughs> this. This actually is a more realistic version of this film. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree.
1: I agree. <laughs> oh, and this
0: one, too.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I like this one. I thought it was—I thought it was a nice, uh, a nice relevant meme here.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing this one. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah,
1: don't I. I, I know too. there's people there's people in my circles who would not like this one, but I don't care. Same here. No, <laughs> we don't.
3: <I'm>
0: <yet>. That's why we're sharing it. And we we respect everyone's opinions here and we appreciate you bringing this because this is also important for us. Thank
2: you. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Thanks, Kate.
1: Oh, this, <laughs> this one, I I showed this one to a friend of mine who collects everything. Like, <laughs> it just like does not need that extra adapter for that object they, they threw away years ago. And I just I said this to them because I said this is you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have a drawer full of cables. A drawer, and of course. Yeah, that's one yes, drawer. Like... You should yeah. see my basement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, we're we're all guilty of this. Oh, yeah.
0: oh yeah. yeah, for sure. Totally. For sure! Because you never know when you're going to need it, right? <laughs> well,
1: especially in my case, it's like I don't remember what it's for and I may or may not still have that thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm like... Right. <laughs> I might need it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Safer to keep it
1: all. Yeah, exactly. No, oh, this one, yeah. Oh, this-, this, this, show- <laughs> this showed up earlier in the year around New Year's. Yeah, I thought that I thought this was very appropriate. Well, hopefully, it's not going to turn out this way. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know which one is worse. Though. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I don't know either. Right, the Joker or, or either. yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs>
0: well, it's already March, and when we're recording this, when by the we're way,
1: recording yeah, this. Things so. are yeah.
2: looking
0: promising, so I want to get, get levels over this year.
1: Yeah, there, there's, there's reasons for hope. Oh, this one too.
3: <laughs> oh my god,
1: I love it. But no one sells bitcoins, I think that that's the magic of it, right? <laughs> well, this one, this one, I saw this one floating around. Um, whenever it was like what is it, a month ago or so during the GameStop stock when the GameStop oh, yeah. stock was yes. being driven upward, and uh. Yeah, people were basically having the same attitude. They're like, take the profit, sell your stock. And they're like, no, I'm going to hang no. on
2: to it. Yeah,
0: well, the same. They tried to do the same with Dogecoin, but it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but that would be, it would have been amazing. I mean, the ultimate joke. Right?
3: <laughs> Fantastic meme fodder, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and that yeah. was... All for the oh, meme no. round. I know they always seem so short. Well, thank <laughs> you, thank you so much, Kate, for for sharing um, what cracks you up because uh, <laughs> I mean we had a lot of fun with those memes. And thank you for joining us on this new episode. Uh, I personally had a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Uh, thank you for for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. This was super fun. And I and I loved I love the memes as well. I, I, that was a fun feature. <laughs> um, <laughs> well,
0: we're really glad that you had a good time too.
2: Yeah, we always we always have our guests bring some memes because I mean we not only want to know about your experience and everything, but also what makes you laugh. I mean, and yeah. it's the internet. We are on the internet. We are online, of course, <laughs> of course. You have, to have memes,
0: right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly.